There's a difference though, which is this concept of a scheme, of a data sharing scheme, because actually PSD2 and the PSR is still about essentially a one-to-one -one relationship. There was no reference to schemes in PSD2 or the PSR, whereas in FIDA, we have this requirement that the data sharing has to take place as part of so-called schemes. And a new thing that we don't see in PSD2 and the PSR that we see in FIDA, which is you participate in that scheme, you give and potentially take data from others, and also you pay a fair compensation for that exchange of data between the two parties and the participants in that scheme. You're listening to Leaders in Payments and Fintech, a podcast brought to you by Edgar Dunn & Company, the global payments and fintech consulting firm. Coming to you from the City of London, I'm your host, Martin Kodrish. And in this series, I'm meeting with leaders and practitioners across the industry to find out what it takes to bridge the gap between strategy and execution. My central question is, how can we commercialize and bring the benefits of ever deeper new technology to market in what continues to be a highly regulated industry? If you enjoy these interviews, please do subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. So enough of the intro, let's get straight into today's episode. Today's episode is a timely one. We meet up with Scott McInnes, partner in the Brussels office of international law firm Bird & Bird, to deep dive the recently published package of new payments legislation proposed by the European Commission. Scott has more than 15 years experience of competition law and regulation, with considerable expertise in payments regulation across Europe. First off, we review the much-anticipated Third Payment Services Directive, PSD3, which itself consists of two proposals, the Directive plus the Payment Services Regulation, or PSR. Secondly, we take a look at a proposal for a framework for financial data access, or FIDA, which seeks to extend open banking to establish rights and obligations to manage customer data sharing in the broader financial sector beyond payment accounts. And then thirdly, we discuss a proposed framework to facilitate the possible introduction of the digital euro, which is perhaps the most radical and transformative idea on the table. With the EU payments legislation pipeline now chock-a-block, we also consider the UK's post-Brexit position and the fact that the UK has, for the first time in the 20-plus years of EU payments regulation, not had any input or say in the drafting of this proposed legislation. A lot to get through, so let's get started. I'm delighted to have Scott McInnes on the podcast today. Welcome, Scott. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm very good. Thank you. How are you, Martin? I'm good. Thank you, Scott. So looking forward to our conversation today on PSD3 and the proposal package. The Payment Services Directive obviously goes back a number of years, um, and it's really provided the framework that has continued to support the payments and fintech industry across Europe. So an eagerly anticipated next set of proposals, uh, which I'm looking to dive into today with you, Scott. Before we do that, perhaps you could just introduce yourself. Sure. So I'm Scott. Uh, I'm a lawyer in, in an international law firm called Bird & Bird. Um, so I'm part of our financial regulatory team, um, more particularly focusing on payment services regulations with a bunch of colleagues around the globe. Um, I've been here for seven years. Time flies when you're having fun, I guess. Uh, and our paths crossed at MasterCard, right? Yes, absolutely. I was at MasterCard for four years as an in-house lawyer and then uh, spent almost eight years in another firm before MasterCard. All right, good stuff. Let's dive in. Um, maybe you could just give me a sense of the background to PSD3. Set the scene, if you like. Yes, absolutely. So what we had until now, basically, is we had something called PSD2, which is obviously the Directive Regulating Payment Services. And we had another directive called uh, EMD2 in the jargon, which is the e-money directive, which regulated essentially e-money services. Uh, think, for example, prepaid cards. Um, what the commission has proposed last week is basically to merge, well, to merge and to split at the same time. So the commission last week have published three draft texts 
One is called PSD3. Um, one is called uh, the PSR, which is the Payment Services Regulation. And the third one is called Open Finance slash FIDA. Um, so what they've done with PSD3 and the PSR essentially is to merge some provisions of PSD2 and some provisions of EMD2, so the second e-money directive into one text, and that's PSD3. And that's basically all the stuff on essentially authorizations and supervisions. Um, and that's still going to be a directive, but basically it regulates how do you get your license to provide payment services and or how do you get your license to provide e-money services essentially. And how do you, and how do you get supervised by national regulators? Mm. How can you passport your authorization that you get in one member state into another member state or, or, or it can be more than one member state, could be all member states potentially to provide your services across the EU. That's all going to be in PSD3 for payment services per se and e-money services. And in the past, we always had this distinction between payment institutions that were the entities authorized to provide payment services under PSD2 and e-money institutions, EMIs. The, the, so those two groups of companies are now going to be called payment institutions uh, and they are payment institutions that only provide payment services and they are payment institutions that also provide e-money services. But, but in future, we'll no longer be talking normally about EMIs, for example, e-money institutions. That's basically PSD3. Um, and then you've got the PSR and the PSR, that's going to be a regulation. So unlike a directive like PSD3, the PSR would be what we say, what we call it directly applicable, which means the rules. In the actual text of the regulation, those are the rules that apply to you directly. It doesn't have to be implemented, incorporated, transposed into national laws. And it eliminates the, PS... the, the derogation, right? It's supposed to. So it's supposed yeah. to make sure that there's one text, which is the same for everybody. Right. And therefore, everybody has to play by the same rules. Um, and ideally, that unique text is therefore interpreted in the same way by all national regulators that are in charge of the enforcement. And that creates a true internal market where everybody has to play by the same rules, the same text and which gets interpreted and enforced in the same way by all the national regulators throughout the EU. That's, it's that's kind the of vision, fair to say, that's the dream. It's fair to say that PSD1 certainly and PSD2, even PSD2 has been kind of enforced and interpreted in different ways across the EU, right? Absolutely. There are, there are loads of, well, one, when the directive gets implemented into national laws, on occasion we see that the local legislator with implemented sometimes do things a little bit differently. So some yeah. countries are essentially copy-pasting the text, they gold-plate the text, and that's it. So that's pretty easy. But some countries on occasion do funky things when they incorporate the directive into their national laws, sometimes on purpose, sometimes not on purpose. Yeah. Uh, and then the national regulators, uh, well, any piece of text, and frankly, that is also true for regulation, unfortunately. So while the dream is one regulation interpreted in the same way by everybody, all the regulators throughout the Europe, all the national regulators throughout Europe, that's the vision, but in practice, uh, you, you can get three, three lawyers in the room looking at the same text, potentially you get four different legal interpretations. So, um, so we've got the various different proposals on the table, right? And we've got the PSD3, we've got this, the, the, the PSR, the regulation. Yes, then we got... the PSR is all about the rights and obligations of the parties. So the rights, right. and, so the, so the rights of the payment service user, the customer of the payment service or the e-money service. And the obligations of the payment institutions, the PIs that provide payment services and e-money services, that's now in one regulation. And the enforcement powers of the regulators, which are now tougher. Um, and then there's FIDA. Uh, so FIDA is all about open finance. PSD2 was all about open banking. Let's get access to the payment accounts yeah. uh, in order to initiate payments or to, to pull the data from the payment account. FIDA is all about, well, let's get access to a, 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 whole, a whole lot more than yeah. just the payment accounts. I suppose this PSD3 is, is 
um, has been developed, the proposal has been developed for the first time without any UK input. Is that, is that yes. the case? Unfortunately, the UK is out. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'd like to discuss the UK perspective as well later on, if we can. Yeah. But um, it does feel like a significant proposal in terms of the potential impact of what they're trying to achieve here is, I mean, I think PSC2 was positioned as quite a big milestone. And, and this is, do, do we feel as though it's a similar level of change that is going to be introduced? So, so the commission on that is on the record of saying PSD3 and the PSR is not meant to be a revolution. It's meant to be evolution. So you will hear people from the commission say that all the time. Mm. So in some sense, it's less of a revolution than PSD2 was, if you like, because PSD2 had this brand new concept of open banking. Let's force the so-called ASPSPs, the account servicing payment service providers, let's call them banks, force banks to give access to data to others and, and to basically open up the, the infrastructure and allow well, essentially third parties to tap into it to pull data. That was a revolution. Um, PSD3 um, has an evolution in that sense. It's trying to clarify things in terms of what is accessible, what can be essentially the ways in which the data can be used. So to clarify a number of things, but there's no revolution, if you like, in terms of open banking. Same thing on SCA, so, so the principle of strong customer authentication, that when you log into your payment account or when you initiate a payment, you have to perform SCA. That was in PSD2, and that, I would argue, was also kind of a revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, in PSD3, there is no revolution in that respect. There's clarifications of the SCA requirements. When is SCA really required? What exemptions are available? So essentially clarification. So I would argue that PSD3 and the PSR does not contain a revolution, as the commission says. It's an evolution of the existing mm. principles. I think that FIDA might be kind of revolution or it's the extension of the scope of open banking. So you could say it's the extension of the revolution or it's an or it's a second revolution. I mean, it depends how you want to phrase it. Okay, um, absolutely. And so it's been developed in consultation with, with the stakeholders and in response to feedback from stakeholders yes. in the industry. Yeah. Absolutely. So, 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 so the commission over the last two years or so, have been, they have been consulting a lot. There were public, there were public consultations uh, in which people could, could feed in. Uh, they've, they've reached out to a number of regulators, in particular the EBA, so the European Banking Authority, have published a paper that is about 150, 200 pages in July of last year, I think it was, where they basically made their recommendations as to what they think had to be changed, if you like, as part of the move from PSD2 to PSD3 and the PSR. So, so they made a number of suggestions. Some have been taken on board by the commission in this draft that we got last week. Some have not. Um, but yes, so, so, so yes, they've consulted extensively, it's fair to say. Right. Let's step through the, the documents on the table one by one. Um, we might repeat ourselves a tiny bit, but in terms of PSD3, mm-hmm. can you just summarize that again? Yes, yes, absolutely. So um, if you wanted to provide e-money services in the past, you had to look at the e-money directive, see what the right. requirements were, what the obligations were to get authorized. If you wanted to provide payment services, you would look at PSD2. Now you'll be looking at one text. Uh, you'll say, I want to provide payment services and or e-money services. You're going to be looking at PSD3, what the requirements are for you to get your authorizations if you don't currently have one. What the requirements are to get reauthorized, because that's another, it, it, it's another potential pain point of PSD3, which is if you currently have an authorization to provide payment services or e-money services, you're still probably going to have to get in touch with your regulator and say, hey, let me reapply to you to basically refresh my license because there are new obligations in PSD3 and the PSR that weren't there. And those, those companies that are already authorized will have to go to the regulator, demonstrate compliance with the new requirements, and then they get a fresh license as a payment institution under PSD3. 
So, so that could be potentially quite painful uh, for some existing players. But if you're, if, you, if you're not currently regulated, you will look at PSE3 to see, okay, what are the requirements for me to get authorized as a payment institution to provide payment services or e-money services? Yes, they will does all it, be under. Does it introduce any new types of entities or players? It doesn't. There's one new type of entity being created, but that's in FIDA. Uh, those are the so-called financial information service providers or FISPs. Uh, so those guys are new, but in PSE3 and PSL, we, we don't have new players. It, it's right. the existing players. So essentially payment institutions, what we call e-money institutions, uh, account information service providers, payment initiation service providers. It's, it's those kind of players that were there already. Okay. So that's the directive. Um, yep. And then we're moving on to the PSR, the payment services reg regulation. Right. So the PSR is all about the substance. So it's basically once you've got your license to provide your e-money services or your, or, and or your payment services under PSD-free, then you look at the PSR in terms of what, what rights and obligations you have and what rights and obligations your customers have. Uh, what rights and obligations does, have, does an account information service provider have in terms of getting access to payment account data that sits with, say, a bank, so-called ASPSB, what are the obligations of those ASPSPs vis-a-vis -vis those third parties that are trying to get access to the payment account? So whether it's the ISP trying to pull data or PISP trying to initiate a payment. So, so all that substance, if you like, of, of the rights and obligations, that's now in that regulation mm -hmm. in the PSR. And the enforcement powers of regulators, because PSD2 basically said you had to appoint national regulators and they needed to have basically powers to, to enforce the obligations that were stated in PSD2. The PSR now goes further and say, well, uh, I, I don't think there's been enough enforcement uh, in yeah. particular in relation to open banking. So I want to make sure regulators have more teeth to go after those companies that potentially don't, don't comply with the substantive requirements in the PSR. So the PSR has a bunch of articles at the end saying, I want national regulators to have the following powers, to have in particular the power to impose fines. I want the level of the fines to be minimum, this and this and that. Uh, and even the EBA is given a new power it didn't have before to temporarily stop the commercialization of a, of a payment service or a feature of a payment service right. if it believes there's something wrong with it. So even the EBA can actually can give an instruction to a company, I don't want you to commercialize this payment service for the next three months, and then they can prolong those three months uh, yeah. by various tranches of three months to stop the commercialization of something that, they, that they're not sure they like. So this is... It's fair to say it's directed at the banks and, and the kind of lifting the increase in the baseline adoption of, of the open APIs that were developed under PSD2 and the quality and performance of those APIs. I think so. Um, yes, I absolutely think so. Because one of the issues with PSD2, the commission would say, is that yes, open banking was this revolution. Yes, it was great. It's a great move in the right direction, but we've not seen enough open banking yet. And, mm. and one of the reasons they believe we don't see enough open banking yet, i.e. not more consumers, say, actually connecting to an AISP for that AISP to provide this account information service to them, or more consumers using a PISP uh, as, for example, an alternative to using their MasterCard or Visa card, say, to buy something online. They claim it's because, yes, the, the, the banks have not complied well enough with their requirements to provide yeah. good interfaces, good technology for those TPPs to get access to the payment account and to provide their valuable services to consumers. Yeah. Maybe in particular because the regulators were not enough on their back, essentially well, telling exactly. them, I want yeah. you to comply and I want you to comply quickly. Otherwise, this, you know, you know, there are bad things that will happen to you. What, were the, what was the enforcement framework under PSD2? So it was not regulated under PSD2. It was basically left to the member states. The hmm. only thing that PSD2 said is that it, it, it 
it required the national regulators at powers to enforce PSD2. That's more or less where PSD2 had left it. And then it was all left to the laws of the member states. And therefore, I mean, you could broadly see the same general principles in national legislations. Yes, they could impose fines. Yes, typically Mm. they they could they could impose an order to 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 essentially to to stop a particular behavior, et cetera, et cetera. Now it's just being harmonized because yes, Mm. the 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 commission wants to make sure all those national regulators have very strong teeth, very strong powers to threaten to do nasty things or to actually deliver and do nasty things to those companies, like impose a period, impose a PPP. So it's essentially a periodic penalty payment. If, as long as you don't comply, you will have to pay this daily amount, essentially as a daily fine, if you like, uh, on top of a fine for, for not delivering on time on, on your obligations, yeah. uh, the right for regulators to inspect the premises of a company. So to do what is typically, which is typically referred to as a door raid, to actually show up at the wow. premises. And they can interview people. They can take copies of documents, all sorts of things. So the, now those powers are are, are going to be clearer, are going to be stronger, are going to be harmonized at EU level. And this is, I think, to your point, really to send a strong message, in particular mm. in relation to open banking, that if you don't give proper access with good technology, reliable, to make sure the two categories of TPPs, the AISPs, PISPs, can be successful, then bad things that might happen to you and probably oh. will happen to you. Do you think it will have the desired effect? I mean, it's been very patchy, right? The development of the, the API has been, some markets been, you know, been high performing APIs, but in other, other areas, it's just the minimal requirement to be, to be compliant. Do we think the, the enforcement powers are going to have the desired effect? I mean, I hope so. In some countries, at least, I think that we will see that regulators will be under more pressure to act. Yeah. Uh, and this increased pressure on some of the national regulators, I think, will have an effect on the banks, on so-called ASPSPs, for them to, to actually comply with the regulations. I think so. So I think we will see movements in some countries where maybe, yes, the, the, the interfaces that were provided by ASPSPs were maybe not up to par. I think that we will see movement, yes, in some countries. Or all countries going to be absolutely perfect, and banks in all countries, will they deliver the perfect, uh, you, know, you know, this type of perfect access that's, that that the PSR calls for. I mean, maybe that's wishful thinking, um, but I think we will see movement. I think it is going to improve yeah. in a number of EU member states. In fact, yes, that's that's how we some some markets the TPP in market itself hasn't really been able to develop because the infrastructure hasn't not sufficient or wasn't, yes. wasn't supportive. Absolutely, absolutely. So so we should see movement there, and, and of course there's there's. There's, if you like, there's a double whammy with 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 the provisional open banking in PSC, in the PSR getting stricter, etc. And on top of that, you've got the feeder layer, which is and all those other things that are not payment accounts. We also want you to give access to those as well. And so, if you have those two things and the powers of regulators and the pressure for those regulators to to get stricter in terms of enforcement, yes, I think. You could expect to see movement on open banking and better quantity APIs, et cetera. Absolutely. Well, let's, let's move on to feeder. Really interested uh, on that proposal. What, do, what does it stand for? I need to look it up myself, actually, because I'm, I'm actually getting used to all those new acronyms mm-hmm. since, since last week. So it's a regulation on, it, on the framework for financial data access. The oh, okay. so FIDA stands for financial data access. So will it be a, a regulation or a directive? That one is a regulation. Right. It's a so regulation. It's, okay. Directly applicable. Yep. Um, and, and and what what are the talk me through what it's trying to achieve? So it's basically trying to extend the scope of open banking to the things that don't fall within the scope of open banking. If you like, open banking was a revolution, but you could argue, well, it's only a revolution in relation to access to payment accounts. And yes, it's big, but at the same time, it's small. 
So FIDA is all about saying, okay, so PSD2 and the PSR will continue to take care of access to payment accounts data, nothing more, nothing less. FIDA is about access to all those other things that don't fall within the scope of the PSR and access to payment accounts. So it's going to be access to savings accounts. It's going to be access to investment accounts. It's going to be access to insurance accounts, insurance products, pension rights, mortgages, and a bunch of other things. So yes, it's a, it's a, it's new, it's a, it's a long list of financial institutions that do not necessarily qualify as account servicing payment service providers, ASPSPs under PSD2, that will be forced to share data with others, but also potentially could get access to data from others. So like in PSD2, you can be, and in the PSI in the future, you can be an ASPSP, i.e. you're forced to share data with others, but you yourself can be an AISP and with your AISP add-on, get data from other ASPSP. So it's on occasion you have to give, but you can also take. It's the same thing under FIDA, a long list of financial institutions that will have to share data with others if the customer wants, of course, his information to be shared with others. But at the same time, they could be the beneficiaries of that data and go and fetch information that sits with other financial institutions. But yes, so it impacts banks, it impacts, it, it impacts uh, the PIs, so the payment institutions, the e-money institutions, investment firms, the, the so-called crypto asset service providers, the CASPs uh, that we talk about a lot, in particular in the context of Mika, uh, the issues of asset reference token, uh, the, the, the managers of alternative investment funds. So there's a long list of, of regulated players that will have to share data with others, but potentially will be able to get access to data that sits with, other, wow. uh, with those other financial institutions. It, it sounds very ambitious. It is. It is very ambitious. Absolutely. Um, is the sharing of data supposed to take place in a similar kind of open API yes. um, infrastructure? Yep. Yes. And, the, am I right uh, in uh, thinking? I mean, there's a difference though, which is, which is this concept of a scheme, of a data sharing scheme, because actually PSD2 and the PSR is still about essentially a one-to-one -one relationship. So it's, right. a, it's, an, it's an ASPSP, let's say a bank, that has to expose an interface that allows an AISP or a PISP to connect to the payment account. That's essentially what we see in PSD2 and the PSR. In FIDA, they also have this concept of an interface made available in order for others to get access to the data, but as part of a scheme. So they talk about data sharing schemes, uh, which is something that we've seen develop essentially in the market anyway. Um, uh, that schemes were popping up to basically organize that access to payment account data under PSD2 and in the future under the PSR. But there was no reference to schemes in PSD2 or the PSR. Whereas in FIDA, we have this requirement that the data sharing has to take place as part of so-called schemes. And we know them well, of course, in the payments industry. Yeah. There are loads of schemes out there, the schemes that are maintained by the European Payments Council, for example, the card schemes, etc. So here they, 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 they essentially formalize in FIDA this concept that we want the data sharing to take place as part of schemes where the data holders, which are the company that basically hold the data, and the data users, so those are so-called, we would call them the TPPs under PSD2. So those, those companies that are entitled to get access to data uh, will have to participate in those schemes together, agree on the rules of the games, agree on the technology that will be used for the data sharing, essentially on the multi, well, it, it's a contract in a way, but it's a multilateral contract with multiple parties to the contract with scheme rules. And a new thing that we don't see in PSD2 and the PSR that we see in FIDA, which is you participate in that scheme, you give and potentially take data from others, 
And also you pay a fair compensation for that exchange of data between the two parties and the participants in that scheme. I was going to mention that, yeah, this, this new provision that supports the commercialization of premium APIs. Yes, okay. correct. Um, correct. Okay. Because the, the feeder text, uh, it, it is, it basically an, is, it's one implementation of, of another EU text, which is currently in the making. It's about to be finalized. There was a final meeting, what they call the trialogue last week to agree on the final version of that text. It's called the Data Act. And the Data Act is, is a cross-sectoral EU act. It, it would be a regulation as well, by the way, uh, which will be, it will be formally adopted later this year and then published in the official journal and then will, will become binding. And that is all about the sharing of information between people that hold the data and other third parties that are basically interested in doing useful things for the consumers with that data. That's basically what the Data Act is about. It's cross-sectoral. And basically, FIDA is a vertical implementation in the financial services sector of the basic principles of the Data Act. And the Data Act also provides for that concept of the party that provides the data being entitled to a fair compensation for making that data available to, to the others, basically, to the data users. And are we, are we talking just um, consumer-level data, but, or, or, or is this also equally applied to business data? It, it's... It's also business data. It, it, it is right. not limited to consumers. Okay. Yeah. So I say consumers as an example, but you're absolutely right. This is not, this is not limited to consumers. They call it the customer uh, right. in, in FIDA. Uh, in, in, in PSD2, the PSR, we typically refer to the payment service user, uh, the PSU, yes. which can also be a consumer or corporate. Uh, in FIDA, they call it the customer. Um, so the customer is entitled to get a copy of his own data. That's one thing. And mm -hmm. is entitled to give a so-called data holder an instruction to share data with others call it data users. And, and, and the concept of a compensation is obviously interesting because here they call it a compensation or a fair compensation. I think they call it in places in FIDA. But frankly, in the payments industry, it's been called something else for many, many years. It's been called mm. interchange. Right. It's been called interchange fees for many years because yeah. an interchange fee... Uh, the fair has, compensation, isn't it? Has, is has it? Been, exactly. It's been, it's been a, 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 a scheme determining the default level, the fallback level that it wants one one regulated party, one payment service provider called the acquirer to pay to another regulated payment service provider called the issuer, and it's been mm. called an interchange fees. But of course, the, the, there's been a massive saga, as you know, around interchange fees, 20 years of competition enforcement against Visa, Mastercard in particular, some of the national card schemes like CB in France, et cetera. Um, and essentially, it's, it's become essentially a world that not many, not many people, I think, actually they're using these days, uh, this, this, this almost nasty word, if you like, of an interchange fee. But frankly, this is nothing else than I think an interchange fee. It's a yeah, scheme it is, that will decide what one regulated player has to pay to another regulated player as the default compensation for the services being provided. Um, uh, so obviously the, it, it does raise some sensitivities, of course, because the commission has to be very consistent with what they've done in relation to interchange fees on car payments and what they now will allow as part of those schemes and a feeder. But there's no suggestion that there'll be some kind of interventional in terms of capping that fair compensation or regulating the actual compensation level itself. They, so th there are principles in FIDA around how the level that fee should be set and, and things like, so the costs, for example, the reasonable cost that can be factored in to the, to the, dev to the determination by the scheme of what is that fair compensation that one party should pay to another. We see that uh, it, it's a live topic because there is actually a scheme under PSD2 that is being developed at the moment by the European Payments Council, the EPC, which is called the SPA. Um, yeah. 
and I can't remember what SPA stands for now, but it's about SEPA payment account access. Well, I think that's what SPA is actually. Uh, <laughs> it just came back to me. And, um, and as part of that SPA, which is all about essentially the value added services, i.e. on top of ASPSPs and the PSD2 today being required to share payment account data with others, the SPA is trying to develop and to get those ASPSPs to share more. So, so this concept of the premium API that you mentioned before, share more than what you're legally forced to share under PSD2. Mm. under PSD2, and then you can well, get a compensation as part of that SPA scheme. Us, but, us, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. But of course, the discussion is taking place, uh, and, and it's all in the public domain, uh, between the EPC as the potential operator of that SPA scheme and the commission in terms of what level of interchange fees, i.e. Mm. inter-PSP compensation, uh, the guys at DigiComp would allow uh, the EPC to set uh, as part of the SPA scheme. And they are to commission economists, to look at the various heads of cost that could be included in the determination of that interchange fee, not called an interchange fee, and so on and so forth. And I think we're going to have very similar discussions uh, under FIDA. But I, I suppose, I mean, the lessons from UK open banking is that, you know, you have to offer the, the bank some opportunity to make a business case out of the investment into their APIs. Otherwise, you'll just get minimal compliance. What the commission has said, yes, absolutely, right. and and they were actually wondering if this concept of the fair compensation should now be injected into the successor of PSD two, i.e., in the PSR, or not. And they decided in the end that they should not. In other words, under the PSR in the future, it is proposed at the moment that ASPSPs continue to give access to payment accounts free of charge. There's no compensation there under the PSR. The right. compensation only comes under FIDA, at least at the moment in the draft text. Uh, it only comes under FIDA. But yes, some people have said that one of the reasons why indeed ASPSPs were not providing good access to payment accounts under PSD2 was not, not only because they were dragging their feet and yeah. maybe the regulators were not active enough, but it's because they lacked that business case in terms of why should I give access to other people that potentially are going to come and eat my lunch and I give them access for free to that data. That sounds unfair. So yes, I might perhaps decide to drag my feet because there's no commercial benefit here. But if there is a commercial benefit in terms of sharing, again, not under the PSR, under the proposal at the moment, that would still be a free of charge access to the payment account, but to all the other accounts and all the other, the other sets of data mentioned FIDA, there, there should be a commercial objective uh, or com yeah, uh, commercial incentive rather to- um, does, does the rise of the commercialization raise concerns regarding the rights of customers over their own data? I mean, yeah. in, in principle, they should all be based on, on the customer's what well, they used to call it consent under PSE2, and then the word consent raised a lot of issues with the interplay between PSE2 and GDPR, because obviously the, uh, in GDPR you've got those, well, you've got those concepts of consent, explicit consent. So now they call it permission, uh, just to avoid that clash with GDPR. So if it's uh, in FIDA and in open banking under the PSR, it's all based on the, the, the customer's permission. So in principle, nobody should be exchanging data unless the customer is happy with it. He's given his permission for that data exchange to take place, and he's been given clear. Uh, he, he's been told very clearly for what purposes that data will be used, for how long, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. So, in principle, nobody should be tempted to share data essentially behind the customer's back, just to pocket that fair compensation. That should not be yeah. happening in theory. Yeah. Um, now, in practice, <laughs> uh, we will see, I guess. But but in theory, this is all based on customer's consent. In other words, if I don't get if as a customer, I don't give my consent to any of the financial institutions listed in FIDA to share my data with others, the so-called data users, my data should, should not be moving around. It should stay where it is with the provider of my financial service, and it should stay there. And therefore, there's no fair compensation being exchanged between anybody, theory. Right. 
It's got two final topics. First one's quite straightforward. You know what happens next. And then, and then I'd love to just get your perspective on the implications for the UK. So let's start off with what happens to these proposals as the next step. Right. So as you mentioned, those are just proposals. So that's, that's the commission basically putting texts on the table and basically handing over those texts to the two to to two UK co-legislators, i.e. the European Parliament and the European mm-hmm. Council, essentially saying, guys, you now need to discuss and to agree on the final version of those texts. So they're just proposing, they're not voting, they are not the legislator, uh, the commission. They're putting those texts on the table um, and then it's going to be up to the Parliament and to the Council to negotiate the text, to propose their, their amendments, their proposed changes to both sets of texts. What will happen is at some point we will get a revised version from the Council we will get a revised version from the European Commission. And then those two parties, the Parliament and the Council, and the Commission, who is proposing the, the, those texts, will get together in what is called the trilogue to negotiate the final version of those texts, yeah. PSD3, PSR, and FIDA. Um, that might take a while. Um, my personal guess is that we won't get the final version of those texts after the trilogue before, I'd say, I'd say it's going to take roughly two years, if I had to guess. So my guess is we get the final version of PSE 3 final version of PSL, and final version of FIDA somewhere, say, in June 2025, roughly. Might right. be a bit quicker than that. Uh, so, so maybe I'm, uh, I'm a little bit too pessimistic, um, but uh, so that's just my guess. So maybe we should do another podcast in two years and see if I was right or wrong. Is the PSL directly applicable at that point? So uh, no. Uh, okay. No, because they want to align the timing of the PSR and the timing of PSD3. Right. So once you've got the final PSD3 text, so let's say June 2025, yeah. member states are then given 18 months to implement PSD3 into their national laws. Right. So that's an extra 18 months with one exception, which is the stuff on, 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 on the Settlement Finality Directive, because PSD3 is making changes to the Settlement Finality Directive, the SFD. There, I think member states only have six months. But otherwise, all the other provisions, 18 months. And then after 18 months, those provisions are all supposed to go live. So, so, so the national laws implementing PSD3 are all supposed to go into effect. And that's at the same time, then the PSR goes into effect as well. So it's to align the timing of national okay. laws implementing PSD3 and the PSR so that that timing is aligned. Right. Uh, so that's the ambition there. Um, so that so it might take a while because 20, if you're... 27 around before... You're talking about uh, end of 2026, potentially. Yeah. Mm. End of 2026, beginning of 2027. So, so it, which sounds like a long time and it's always the same thing, right? Those things take time. They're very complex, et cetera, lots of moving pieces. Uh, so it's all very complex, but in the meantime, I mean, the market is going to continue to evolve. And so, so now we've got something on dedicated interfaces, access schemes, fair compensation, all that stuff, but will all of that be relevant still in two years time in June, 2025, the market will have moved on. Plenty of things would have happened. New schemes would have come to life in the meantime. So it's always the same thing, which is you, it takes a long time to adopt legislation. By the time it gets adopted, maybe it's already a little bit outdated. And by the time it gets implemented to national laws, actually enforced, then it might be completely outdated. So it's, it's a difficult exercise to, to, to legislate and to regulate. I mean, it's a very important one, but it's, uh, but it's very complex at the same time. Um, yeah. Okay, final question. What are the implications for the UK? Um, I mean, do you have a view on how the UK may pursue something similar? What are your, what are your thoughts? Good question. I've, I mean, I suspect, I suspect they will look at doing something similar. I mean, after all, uh, the, this concept of open banking was not really invented in PSD2. It was actually invented in the UK. It was, 
essentially a competitional remedy that the Competition Markets Authority, the CMA, imposed on the big nine banks in the UK in terms of giving access to payment accounts. So the UK invented open banking, then it was copy-pasted, if you like, in PSD2, and, and then it turned into this big thing that we know. I think there are already movements that are happening in the UK, of course, in relation to open banking. So, 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 so it's evolving in the UK with new mandates being given to the so-called JROC, new objectives that are being set, etc. So I'm sure that the UK will be looking very closely at those texts, like we have, like we are at the moment, and will essentially, I guess, try to pick and choose. So, so, so look at the text, take the things that they like, and maybe ignore the things that they don't like. Um, right. But there is, I mean, it's the, the, the direction the, of travel, right? They're plotting Shab- their own course, right? The free spot yeah. their own course. Or, yeah. or is there, but is there a sense of maintaining regulatory alignment with the EU? Or? I, I don't know if the UK cares so much about, I mean, because you see, there is a reason why we had Brexit, which is to have basically more freedom. So I think yeah. it, it's, a, it's a freedom to pick and choose, I think. So if the UK thinks that this is a good idea, I think that they will try to replicate it, but maybe do a better version of it um, mm. if they can. Uh, I mean, I'd be really surprised if the UK did not do the same thing, in particular in relation to FIDA, because it seems to me it is the direction of travel to right. to make it absolutely clear that the customer um, is in control of his data. It's his data, in particular if it's a consumer, it's personal data. He's in control of it. He owns it. And he should be able to share that data. And there's no reason why people would sit on his data and not be forced to share that data with others, uh, because that sharing of data will allow those all those parties that will receive the data to provide new, potentially innovative, uh, a new bunch of innovative services for consumers and, and customers in general. Mm. So I'd be really surprised if we didn't see um, an, a form of FIDA, if you like, for example, in the UK, because I think it, it kind of makes sense. It is a direction of travel. We've seen anyway that open banking in the PSD2 has been contagious. We've seen a number of countries around the world that decided to, to actually implement something similar on occasion, potentially better than what we had in PSD2. So, so it's clear that open banking, essentially the UK first and then Europe, uh, so the EU essentially leading the way. I think on FIDA now, again, it's the EU that is trying to lead the way. I think the rest of the world, including the UK, is going to follow this because it kind of makes sense. It empowers mm. uh, the customers to make use of their data in the most optimal way uh, that they see fit. So I'd be really surprised if the UK did not do something very similar in the short term. And, and there are being talks in the UK of open finance anyway. And, and this is just open finance. So FIDA is open finance. It, it's, 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 it's a form of implementing open finance. So yes, I think so. I think we, we can expect something very similar in the UK. Um, um, yeah, so interesting times, no doubt. So, so tell me about the um, digital euro. Yes, so digital euro is an is an interesting animal. Um, it's um, it's the European implementation of the so-called CBDCs, so the central bank digital currencies. That's the context there. It's essentially all about autonomy. So it's all about the fact that essentially in Europe we pay too much with payment solutions that are non-European. I mean, they can be American, they can be Chinese, whatever, but they're not European. Which means, if at some point they decide to basically leave Europe, then we're left stranded with no means to pay. Essentially, that's that's the that's the doomsday uh, doomsday scenario. Uh, so therefore, it, we have to be more resilient. We have to be more sustainable, if you like, versus the rest of the world, and we have to be able to pay with a European method of payment. So against that background, there are a few initiatives. Uh, one of them is called EPI. Uh, so so this idea of well, initially of creating a European version of Visa or Mastercards, which has evolved over time, which is now really based on essentially credit transfers, direct debits. 
there were quite a few solutions like Ideal and Payconic. So basically to roll those out all over Europe, that would be a European way to pay, if you like. So that's one right. dimension of it. But the other one is really about essentially giving consumers in particular a digital version of the Euro banknotes and Euro coins that we may or may not have in our wallets uh, in our daily lives. Uh, because it's all about electronic payments these days, less and less cash payments, less banknotes, less coins being exchanged. Um, and this is all public money that you're exchanging when you're paying cash. So it's to be less dependent on private means of payments, in particular non-European private means of payments. In other words, this proposal that was issued last week is all about allowing consumers to have a digital version of Euro banknotes and Euro coins on their smartphone, for example. Uh -huh. So you would have essentially a wallet on your phone, for example, where you would store digital euros, so digital version of banknotes and bank coins, and you would be able to pay with those. And you would be able to pay with those in an offline way or in an online way. Um, merchants would be forced to accept a digital euro. So unlike, say, Bank Contact in Belgium or Moscow Visa, where any merchant can choose uh, the means of payments that he wants to accept, normally merchants are forced to accept euro banknotes and are forced to accept euro coins. So merchants will also be forced to accept the digital version of those euro banknotes and coins, i.e. the digital euro. So merchants will be forced to accept it. Um, therefore, it raises all sorts of questions on the price. Well, if you force me as a merchant to accept it, how much is it going to cost? So there are already discussions in the proposal on, well, we should probably think about regulating the merchant service charge that the payment service provider, the acquirer, to use a payments term or a, a cards term in particular, but that, that the PSP of the merchant will charge the merchant on his digital euro transactions. Or should we regulate the, to use another word, I don't think they use it in the proposal, but that's what it is, regulate the interchange fee mm. that the payment service provider of the merchant will pay to the payment service provider of the payer on those digital euro transactions. Because if we force merchants to accept it, then it shouldn't be too expensive and certainly should be less expensive than the existing private means of payments because otherwise no merchants will try to push essentially the shoppers, the consumers, the buyers to use it because why would they if it's more expensive than the stuff they already accept? So Wasn't there a concern from the banks that this might reduce liquidity of cash deposits? It could. Is yeah, no, absolutely. Yes. Okay. Um, and of course, the, the banks will be forced to participate in this too, because otherwise uh, there's actually no way to get the consumers to, well, to try it, to test it and to see if they like it. So as a payment service provider, you'll be forced to allow your customers, in particular consumers, to, to test it. So you'll be forced to issue a wallet essentially to a consumer so that he can he, he can store some digital euros in there for the purposes of making transactions with it. Um, okay. It has raised all sorts of discussions on AML um, and on data protection, i.e. who gets access to the data? Does the ECB get to see the transactions I do with my digital euro? Does the national central banks get to see that too? Yeah. Uh, uh, because obviously one of the features of cash is that you can't trace cash. It's anonymous. Uh, exactly, it's anonymous. So, so that is also a big debate. So the idea is that you should be able to make some offline digital euro transactions where nobody can actually trace those right. transactions, just like cash. And then you can make online digital euro transactions, and those transactions will have to be tracked essentially for AML purposes. Um, so um, yeah, so that one is another interesting one. A lot of people are saying, look, this is a pure political animal. Basically, mm -hmm. nobody really needs a digital euro. Uh, merchants are not. Uh, I mean, they're not crying for it. Uh, consumers are not asking for it. Consumers actually get confused, I think, on occasion because they say digital euro, but I do have bank contact. I've got Moscow Visa. What's the difference, you know? Mm. Uh, so it's going to take a bit of education to 
to explain to consumers what it is and why it's a good thing for them to use it, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but fundamentally, it's a political thing which is connected to sovereignty, as I mentioned before. Um, right. So that so that's another interesting one. Um, but that is a proposal that's been submitted by the Commission, and it's going correct. to run a similar timetable. I think so. I think so. Or, or maybe that one is going to be quicker uh, uh, because mm. maybe there's such a political drive behind that one to make it happen, etc. And, and for Europe again to be at the forefront, to be one of the first mm. countries to have its version of a CBDC, etc. Maybe the time is going to be quicker on that one than, say, on PSD3, PSR, and potentially FIDA. So maybe in the year time, we get the final version of Digital Euro, and, uh, and, and, and yeah, it, it will be live. The merchants will be forced to accept it. Banks will have to issue it, et cetera. Well, the wallets to store Digital Euro. Um, so maybe that one's going to be a bit quicker. Um, Indeed. Scott, let's leave it there. Uh, we can carry on. I'm sure with the conversation yes, it's could. fascinating <laughs> um, but let's wrap it up and thank you so much for your insights today it's been really interesting yeah it, it's been a pleasure uh, thank you very much for having me on the show which I very much enjoy by the way I'm a big fan of your podcast so, <laughs> so keep going uh, it's a great one and, uh, how can the uh, audience uh, best reach out to you what's the best way of contacting you uh, either through my email address. So if you go on the Bird and Bird website, you can find me or, uh, just an email or on LinkedIn. Um, those would be two good places to, to come and find me. Um, yeah. Perfect, or, or through you, I guess. Well, through me, of course, I'll, I'll put all the contact details in the show notes as usual. And, um, very kind. Thank you very right. much. Well, we'll definitely schedule another another episode um, yes. in a couple of years' yes. time, shall we? To see, see, see how that things good. developed. Uh, until that point, uh, I'll see you. See you soon. Cheers. That sounds good. Thanks very much, Martin. Bye for now. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. To hear more interviews, please do subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. It helps and means a lot. Also, I welcome any questions, ideas, or suggestions. So feel free to make contact and say hello. Reach out to me on LinkedIn or at edgardunn.com. You can send me a message there. Or you can email me on martin.coderish at edgardunn.com. I look forward to hearing from you and I will see you next time.